0: Please turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 1. <clears throat> now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains, Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David thus says the Lord of hosts I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you And have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you. That he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to not only grow in our understanding of your glorious covenant of grace, but to uh, practically live it out. And so we pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word and the hearing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've come to what several authors have called the pivotal passage in First and Second Samuel. And uh, some have gone way beyond that. Uh, for example, Brueggemann calls it, quote, the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament, unquote. Now, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, but uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is definitely more important in the eyes of other biblical writers uh, who quote this over and over again and apply it, uh, much more important than we might tend to, to think of it or guess of it. For example, both the major and the minor prophets appeal to this passage over and over again to point to the coming Messiah and his new covenant kingdom. Uh, This coming Messiah would be the sure mercies of David, would fulfill the covenant of David, have the key of David's house on his shoulders, uh, sit on the throne of David. And in two verses that I've got here in Isaiah, it says that he will be the covenant. In other words, Jesus is wrapped up in this covenant uh, with David. If you were to cut this uh, chapter out of the Old Testament, there's a lot in the prophets that you would not understand. And uh, really the same is true of the New Testament. Robert Bergen, in his commentary, gives numerous uh, New Testament verses that appeal to this chapter here to teach seven things about Jesus. And I'm not going to give the verses. I've got them here in my notes, but I'm not going to list them. Just the conclusions that the New Testament authors come to. First, that Jesus is the son of David. Second, that he would rise from the dead. Third, that he would be the builder of God's house in the new covenant times. Fourth, that Jesus would be the possessor of the throne of David. Fifth, that Jesus would possess an eternal kingdom that would not pass away. Sixth, that the son of God mentioned in this passage ultimately refers to Jesus. Uh, You know, Solomon is an adopted son. But he's only adopted because of his union with the real son, Jesus. And we're not going to get into some of these points in in, in the sermon, Uh, but uh, I just wanted to show you how important it is in the New Testament. Seventh, that Jesus would be born of a virgin since he had God as his father and a human as his mother. And you might wonder, how could all of that be wrapped up in such an obscurely uh, worded passage? Uh, But it really is. And I'm saying all of this so that you don't get even the remotest illusion that I will have adequately dealt with the passage uh, this morning or have exhausted its meaning. I might exhaust you, but I will not exhaust the meaning. I'm just going to barely dip into it, and then we'll move on uh, to uh, the next verses next week, Lord willing. But uh, I just want to to say there is so much more in here. If you were to read uh, the rest of the Scripture as it points to this passage, you'll see a whole lot more than we'll even have the time uh, to touch upon. But hopefully I'll give you a great bird's-eye view of the, the role that this chapter plays in all of redemptive history. Now, the heart of the covenant is in verses 10 through 16, and we'll get there in a bit. But the context is important as well for quite a number of reasons. Uh, Just as a for example, it teaches that uh, God's faithfulness preceded anything good that was in David. Okay, God's not making this covenant because of David's goodness. Good works flow out of God's grace, not uh, vice versa. David was enabled to be faithful because God is faithful, and this covenant is simply showing more about God's covenant of grace that he has been talking about from Genesis all the way up through 2 Samuel. Take a look at verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. Now the first thing I want you to notice is that God's covenant faithfulness preceded his making of this Davidic covenant. By the way, when I speak of Davidic covenant, it means the covenant God made with David. No way at covenants, covenant God made with Noah, etc. So um, I didn't want you to be confused on that. But there are two ways that we can see God's covenant faithfulness with the house that was built for David and with the peace that God brought through David. Now it's rather abbreviated here, uh, but it becomes obvious when you understand who built David's house. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles says that Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, was so impressed with David's God that he became a genuine believer. And we looked at that uh, when I was preaching on chapter 5, I believe it was. And he so loved David that he offered to build David a magnificent palace. Now, David didn't ask for this. This just came out of the blue. I mean, uh, it it came out of the generosity of his heart. And the... um, the uh, chapter in 1 Chronicles 14 gives this conclusion that David drew from the incredible generosity of Hiram, who, by the way, helps David prepare all the materials for the building of the temple that Solomon's going to construct. First Chronicles 14 verse 4 says, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, and it's a capital H, for the sake of of God's people. So the building of David's magnificent house shows God's covenant faithfulness even before God makes a covenant with David. Do you see where I'm going here? Uh, God talks about the covenant before he makes a covenant with David. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David spoke of God's covenant faithfulness. It's the Hebrew word chesed, God's faithful covenant Uh, covenant faithfulness to him. And the question is, how could that be? What covenant is he talking about? And it's an important question because if you do not see the Davidic covenant of this chapter in the context of the previous covenants, you're going to completely misinterpret, misunderstand uh, what it's talking about. You don't have to go back very many verses in chapter 6 to see references to the ark of the covenant. So if God's throne that David is bringing into Jerusalem is the Ark of the Covenant. Which covenant is he talking about? Well, it's obviously the covenant that God made with Moses. The Ark of the Covenant was at the heart. In fact, it symbolizes the covenant of Moses. It was at the heart of the covenant that God had made. Then in the end of chapter 6, David composes Psalm 105. And the reason we know that is that First Chronicles tells us so. Well, that psalm glories in God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant in the way in which he has blessed David. David was in the Abrahamic covenant as well. Now here's the point. Don't think that every time God makes a covenant with people that uh, he's starting things all over again, okay, that uh, he's reinventing the wheel. That's the way dispensationalists frequently look at the covenants. Instead, each covenant continues. It builds upon and expands the previous covenants. But the previous covenants always continue to be at the heart of the next covenant that God makes uh, with his people. Galatians 3 verse 17, for example, says that the Mosaic covenant could not annul the covenant that God made with Abraham in Christ. It could not annul it. In fact, in verse 15 of that chapter, God says that no covenant that God makes can be annulled. It's of the nature of a covenant that it cannot be annulled. He cannot annul it. And that's an important principle to properly understand covenant theology. Instead of annulling the Abrahamic covenant, Paul says that the Mosaic covenant built on it and fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. And then when we get to this chapter, we see that the Davidic covenant built on and fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. And the New Testament, we find that the new covenant built on and fulfills the Davidic covenant. And if you don't see it that way, you destroy the beautiful picture of salvation just like the Pharisees did. In fact, this was the argument that that uh, Paul had with the Pharisees. They had taken the Abrahamic covenant out of the covenant with uh, the Mosaic covenant and they eviscerated the gospel as a result. Unfortunately, too many Christians do that today and that's a, for a different reason than the Pharisees. Uh, Today, what they're doing is they're trying to get rid of the law of God, and so they build a wall between the law and the gospel. The Pharisees tried to keep the law of God, and they built a law, a wall between the law and the gospel, but they're both doing exactly the same thing. They're putting a wall between the law and the gospel by failing to see the organic relationship that each covenant has to the previous ones. Law and gospel were at the core of every single covenant that God has made. <clears throat> so, what is the immediate context of verse 1? It's chapter 6, obviously. And what happened in chapter 6? David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to the heart of his kingdom. Now, some people try to say that the Mosaic covenant is all law, and the Davidic covenant is all grace. Right? They try to make them as if they're quite different uh, covenants out there. But what was this symbol, this Ark of the Covenant, pointing towards? It was pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Who holds together law and grace? The Ten Commandments were stored in the Ark of the Covenant. Blood was sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the fact that in Jesus, grace and law uh, are knitted together. And so the Puritans spoke of the covenant with Moses as being part of the covenant of grace. And when you think of the topology that God gave under Moses... It's obvious. There's hundreds, literally hundreds of pictures of the gospel that constantly surrounded the Israelites every single day and that were shepherding the Israelites to the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them about Jesus. So chapter 6 clues us in that David has been blessed because God was faithful to his covenant with Moses. And before that, God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham. Before that, God was faithful to his covenant with With Noah, and before that, God was faithful to his covenant with Adam. We should not see these covenants as radical breaks with the past. Instead, each covenant adds to the previous covenant in spelling out the richness of God's covenant of grace. Now, let me outline what was central to each covenant and what was unique to the covenant. So, you're going to be getting a little bit of covenant theology this morning. What was central? That's pretty easy law and gospel. Uh, every single covenant pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel. Every single covenant did. He was at the heart of every covenant from Genesis 3:15 and on. But each covenant did introduce something unique, and I'm going to go over those. The Adamic covenant restored the individual and the family to God, but also spoke of an ongoing battle between Satan and God and between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. So there's salvation, there's spiritual warfare, there's eschatology, as Adam looks forward to the coming Messiah, and God's message concerning the seed of the woman shows that God's covenant grace would be passed on from generation to generation in family lines all the way up uh, to the Messiah. So the individual and the family being restored are what is unique to this first covenant. The curse is still on the ground, okay? Uh, the, uh, but individuals and families are restored. It's really not till we get to the time of Moses that the territory that Satan uh, pretty much owns begins to be restricted. Okay, The Noahic covenant restored an inheritance for God's covenant families. They would inherit the earth by God's grace, and the promises of an inheritance are very, very tangible. God's covenant embraced planet earth the seas, the dry land, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves upon the face of, of, of the earth. It speaks to the fact that God cares about the physical very much like Rodney was preaching on uh, before. <clears throat> the physical earth had previously been judged, and now the physical earth is going to be included in God's plans uh, in the covenant of grace. Now, how long does this covenant last? It's not just till Moses where God supposedly reverts back to a small plot of land in Palestine, and that's the only territory that God is is interested in. No, that's to misinterpret the covenant, because Psalm 37 says even during the Mosaic covenant, the old promise that the meek will inherit the earth continues to be true. Psalm 37. Uh, And so how long does this last? Genesis 8 verse 22 says it will last as long as there is a planet earth and seasons upon the earth. In other words, as long as there is time. And so the Abrahamic covenant did not annul the Noahic covenant. It built on it. So if your conception of salvation is that at some point in the future you're going to be up in the clouds strumming on a harp without a body and no planet earth, Uh, you are grossly misinterpreting what Christ's purposes for planet earth are all about. Uh, No, God's uh, promises right from the beginning are very, very tangible, and His work on earth will not be finished until planet earth and earthworms and birds and fish and animals are all put under Jesus' feet and, and, and are given once again in proper dominion to His people. E. Calvin Beisner said, "...the goal of redemption is nothing less than the restoration of the entire cosmos." The scope of redemption is truly cosmic. Through Christ, God determined to reconcile to himself all things, Colossians 1.20. Matthew 28 speaks of the renewal. The word is regeneration of all things. We're going to have a very fulfilling time in eternity future. There's going to be a, a new heavens and a new earth in which we're going to be given dominion work. And so the Noahic Covenant shows the broad extent of God's grace in Christ's redemption, and it's a very tangible inheritance. Romans 8 uh, says that uh, uh, the very universe is going to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And Psalm 8 tells us that everything will be placed under Jesus and the new humanity that he redeems. And Beisner points out that that starts in our age, that taking possession of the earth though its ultimate expression is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So, in Adam, you've got restored family. Noah, a restored inheritance. Third covenant is the covenant with Abraham, and it incorporates the individual, it incorporates the family of the Adamic covenant, and it also includes references to the restored inheritance. But what's unique to the Abrahamic covenant is that this restored family is to be discipled within a covenant church with a new sign of the covenant being applied to all of the families within that church. So even though the members of the church started with Adam, the organization of the church started with Abraham. So that's what's unique uh, to the Abrahamic uh, covenant. The covenant with Moses is the fourth covenant, And what is unique to that covenant is the establishment of a nation. Now, with the establishment of a nation under God's grace, it's going to set the pattern for what God's covenant grace is eventually going to do with all the nations uh, of the world. But this is the starting point or the first time that God has covenanted with a nation. So to interpret the land of Canaan as if it's a small plot in Palestine, that's the only parcel of land that God cares about is to forget the previous covenants that said that the meek will inherit the earth. This is the paradigm of what should happen to every nation. And that's why Romans 4.13 says that the promise to Abraham was not simply that he would inherit Palestine, but it says the promise given to Abraham was that he would inherit the world. That was God's intent. Palestine, that's just a down payment, a small down payment. Uh, and uh, God's plans for planet Earth are much broader. But under Moses, the issues related to a nation are clearly spelled out for the first time. Now, of course, in the process, the Mosaic Covenant had to make adjustments to both the family and to the church, and so uh, the avenger of blood, the all that was in the family, now gets transferred over to the state, the executive office and the court, uh, court system that God sets up. And where the firstborn of the family... Sometimes he was second or third born, but he was always called the first born. Where he was the shepherd of that family, Uh, Numbers says that that gets transferred over to the Levites. So there are some adjustments made to family and church, but uh, what's new and what's the focus is the nation. The fifth covenant is the Davidic covenant. Now it's still pointing to Jesus, but it's pointing to an expansion of God's national purposes to other nations and to a future peace between nations, such as was symbolized under Solomon, David's son. And by the way, that's why the the focus is on Solomon building the temple, not David, because he's the man of peace, right? He's the one that symbolizes the time when Christ is going to have uh, uh, peace uh, in the world. So each covenant builds on, advances the meaning of Christ's uh, eventual making of all things new and the reason I'm covering all of those covenants is I think it'll help you to appreciate what's going on in this chapter a whole lot more and, and it's, it, its place in, in redemptive history okay let's get back to chapter 7 look at the second half of verse 1 <clears throat> and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that's just a tiny foretaste of the world peace that Christ is going to be bringing to planet earth where uh, swords are turned into pruning hooks and uh, they will not learn war anymore uh, when all of the nations are are discipled. So Christ brings peace and it's Solomon who symbolizes that. David finally came to the place where all the enemies are subdued and he enables his son, that's the focus of this this chapter here, enables his son to inherit a kingdom of peace and prosperity. Verse 2, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now he was probably looking outside of his fabulous palace, looking out the window, and he sees the tent that he had made to store the ark of the covenant. He's feeling kind of guilty that he's in such a glorious Uh, palace and uh, god has this you know very mundane uh, boring tent and god is shortly going to say uh, you think you've got a great palace just wait till you see what i'm going to prepare for you it's going to be far more glorious than anything uh, you've experienced so far but i think we can appreciate david's heart here matthew henry says when we as saints experience the incredible generosity that God pours out into our lives what's the natural impulse of a regenerate heart it's to want to generously give back to God he says this is a natural impulse of David's heart he wants to do something special for him and later on God's going to reveal very specific plans to David on how to build that temple even though he's going to make sure it's Solomon who does it and, and that's why I say, don't take this as a, a rebuke per se. It's not a wacky idea that he had. Verse 3, <clears throat> then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, he could tell that David had sincerity of heart, and uh, even God honors uh, David. I, th- I think we should not miss that. In verse 5, he tells uh, Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Now that phrase, "my servant," uh, was very rarely used, and it indicates a person who had a very close relationship to God. My servant Abraham, my servant Moses, uh, my servant Caleb, and of course in Isaiah, there's numerous references to Jesus being my servant. Uh, there, so God's honoring him here, and He's recognizing David has uh, a, a a good intention. And in verse 13, God assures David that a temple will be built, but it's going to be built by his son Solomon. So it's not like this is a rebuke for a wacky idea. Instead, I see the dialogue in verses 5 and following as emphasizing the fact that even though this building of a a temple is a good thing, God wanted to symbolize four things that were so important by making David wait, by making Solomon uh, do that. The first thing he wants to symbolize is that the temple should flow from grace rather than earning grace. Second, the temple should come from heaven. The plans for the temple should come from heaven rather than from David. And the reason that's important is in the New Covenant, we see that the kingdom is coming from heaven to the earth. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a humanistic kingdom. It's 100% earth being transformed by the heavenly kingdom. Okay, the the third reason that uh, this is important is that um, the making of the temple should symbolize peace, not war. And then fourth, that David's descendants, uh, and this would be the descendant Jesus, would do something far greater than either David or Solomon would be able to achieve. Okay, look at the second half of verse 5. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. In effect, he's saying, don't feel sorry for me. I don't need a palace. When I have Solomon build me a temple, I want it to be crystal clear. I don't need a palace to house me in, as if the God that made this universe can be housed Instead, I want it to be crystal clear, I want to symbolize something that's going to be happening in the future that's far greater than you could ever imagine. So it's a clarification of the symbolism. Verse 7, he re- reiterates, he's never asked for a temple before, and by the way, this is something that Stephen picked up on in, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, they, the, the, the people he was talking to had idolatrized the temple of the Davidic covenant and completely ignored the heart of that covenant, which was Jesus. Verse 7, Wherever I have moved about with the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I mean, this is something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees completely missed. Verse 8 emphasizes the fact that God exalted David from obscurity uh, to significant service. So it's not the greatness of David that makes the, the Davidic covenant great. It's the greatness of God and God's covenant faithfulness. So verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And again, the point is, the Davidic covenant's not great because David is great. David is special because God has chosen him uh, to serve his kingdom purposes. And these are all lessons that the religious leaders in the Gospels completely missed. Then he says once again that every success that David has achieved, he's achieved because of God's faithfulness. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Subduing enemies... Peace, the greatness of the kingdom, those are central themes of the Davidic covenant. And God's already achieved them in him. So that's the context. Uh, he wanted to make sure that David didn't have the slightest mistaken notion that it was because of his goodness, and he makes sure that we understand that too, because just the previous chapter, David's blown it with regard to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he's blown it with regard to polygamy. In fact, it's interesting, in First Chronicles, that's a parallel passage there Uh, He highlights David's polygamy uh, to show his unworthiness in connection with the giving of, of of this covenant. But despite David's imperfections, God had a covenant loyalty to David, and David had a covenant loyalty to God by grace. So that's the context. Now let's take a look at five provisions that this Davidic covenant promises. First provision was land or a place to dwell, and that's in verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Now a place we can call our own has been on the hearts of God's people ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Okay, This has been something that's a hunger in our human hearts. And as redemptive history moves from paradise lost in Genesis to paradise restored in Revelation, it is with the hope of a secure place to dwell. And God has never forgotten that. The first down payment of this promise was David's reclaiming of every border that was lost since Joshua's conquest. <clears throat> But under Solomon, this down payment is expanded where every nation in the known world, at least known to them, uh, was brought under the influence of the gospel, became friends with Solomon, uh, was under his empire, so to speak, until the end of, uh, of his reign. Now the reason I call it a down payment, this was not the final thing, is that Hebrews 11 says that Abraham and the patriarchs did not receive the land of Canaan. God had promised it to him, and since God cannot lie, that means they have to inherit uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Now if you get the whole planet earth in the future, you've got the down payment included in it as well. So it's not like Abraham and the patriarchs are going to be out anything, but uh, that's the point that, uh, that, um, that um, Hebrews 11 uh, makes. But there's more to it than that. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So even in eternity, there was a place that was prepared by Christ for his people. Now, right now, the place is in heaven, but if you studied the last two chapters of Revelation, uh, you will see that, that uh, those two chapters talk about the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. There's going to be a merging or a coming... In fact, the Lord's prayer is going to be fulfilled. More and more, His kingdom's coming, His will, is, be done, will be, you know, is being done, more and more on earth until finally there is a complete merging of heaven and earth where we're going to be d- dwelling in an eternal kingdom that's tangible and intangible both, heaven and earth merged together. <clears throat> And so Israel was thrown out of the symbolic land, but we will never be thrown out of what it symbolizes, the restoration of the place lost by Adam. Second promise is safety. Verse 10 continues, "...that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies." Security and safety is another longing of the human heart since the dawn of time. We all want security and safety. And there was a certain measure of that security and safety found under Solomon, but according to the prophets, those glory years of Israel were symbolic of a time in history when the nations would be discipled, and then more fully, they're symbolic of the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus is even now beginning the process of making all things new. And here's the point that he does not want us to miss. The Davidic covenant warns us not to seek safety and security apart from Jesus. Doing so leads to idolatry, and it's actually a sure way of losing your safety and security, as verse 14 points out. I mean, Solomon had safety and security, but he was seeking it through wrong means toward the latter part of his reign. And so God says, okay, if you're not going to seek it through my grace, I'm going to afflict you with thorns. I'm going to afflict you with enemies. And he did uh, toward the end of his reign. So it's only in Jesus we can find this provision of safety and security. The third provision of the covenant was to give David a house or a dynasty. Uh, Look at the end of verse 11 and following. Also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, you will come, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His father, and He shall be my son. If He commits iniquity, I will chasten Him with the rods of men, rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this is where God makes an intriguing play on words in the Hebrew. The word for house, bait, is a word that can mean either a literal house, it can mean a temple, or it can mean a royal dynasty. Like we talk about the House of Windsor and you know various royal houses, David was feeling guilty over his house. He wanted to build God a house or a temple, and God says, "Yeah, there's going to be a temple built, but I'm going to build you a far greater house." Okay, so that's all using uh, the same word. He would give David covenant succession, would give him a dynasty, and out of that dynasty would emerge a son. "...that would make David's kingdom, David's throne, and David's house be forever." And, of course, that's a reference to Jesus. Now, I'm going to tease that apart a little bit more for you under point uh, E, but I I do want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15, where we see that the apostles in conference together agreed that the building of the church among the Gentiles was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy of the Davidic house. Uh, Acts 15, beginning to read at verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, "'Men and brethren, listen to me. "'Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles "'to take out of them a people for his name. "'And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, "'After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David "'which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins.'" And I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now James is interpreting Amos, who in turn is uh, interpreting the full ramifications of Second Samuel 7. So this means just as we are in the Abrahamic covenant, Acts 15 says we are in the Davidic covenant. And all of the covenants find their fullest flower and fruit in the new covenant, as Hebrews makes clear. Now back in Second Samuel 7, verse 16 says that this time when the house of David will be built by David's greater son will also be the time that Jesus rules. Uh, commentators have pointed out that if Second Samuel's fulfillment is seen most fully in Jesus, then de facto we are living in the time of the kingdom. Jesus is on His throne. Second uh, Samuel 7, verse 16, "...and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever." So this is not just talking about the Davidic kings before the time of Jesus. It's referring to the forever rule of the last king of David, namely Jesus. And I don't have time to take you through all the throne references uh, in the New Testament... But many verses indicate we are not waiting for Christ's kingdom to appear, as so many premillennialists insist. When he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he ascended to his throne. And I think this is so key to understanding prophecy. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. I think verse 30 makes it crystal clear that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was ascending to David's throne. That's exactly what it says. Acts 2, we'll go ahead and begin reading at uh, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. On whose throne is that? It's not a capital H. This is the throne of David that he's going to sit on. And whether Peter is referring to 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 132.11 or Psalm eighty-nine three, it doesn't matter. They all refer to David's throne. So verse 30 is making it clear that Jesus ascended to sit on David's throne. Now, continuing to read in verse 31. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear for David did not ascend into the heavens in other words even though it was prophesied David would sit on David's throne that was symbolic of Jesus sitting on David's throne so Peter says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself sa- he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Yahweh's invitation to Jesus to sit at his right hand is an invitation to sit on the Davidic throne. Verse twenty five, till I make your enemies your footstool. Now what's the significance of the word till? It indicates that the process is going to take a long time, just like it did from Joshua all the way up. I mean, it took a long time before Solomon had peace. We should not be surprised that there are enemies present at the beginning of Christ's reign, like Pontius Pilate and Herod and and enemies after that. In fact, Psalm 110 prophesied he was going to rule in the midst of his enemies. He's going to be advancing his kingdom when there are enemies around. It's not a sudden thing. It's a gradual process. So till indicates... A process of time. Okay, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that's why Acts 13 insists that if you reject the gospel, you're rejecting the greater David. The two are are tied up together. We are in the final stage of history, the growing of the messianic a kingdom where the central aspects of every previous covenant will eventually be completely fulfilled. So hopefully you can see why, even though it's a tough passage, this is a central passage in biblical theology. Now, if you go back to Second Samuel chapter 7, there are phrases that hint at what the prophets in the New Testament make explicit, that this is a messianic prophecy. And let me emphasize certain words... As I read some of these verses again. Verse 10 says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move, here's the key words, no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Now, if you take it literally, it cannot apply to David, Solomon, and any of the other kings. Simply cannot apply. Uh, look at verse 13. Whoever this son is, he doesn't establish a temporary kingdom. Instead it says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the thro- a throne of his kingdom forever. It's a forever throne. That was not true of the Old Testament kingdom. Look at verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Now Isaiah 55 verse 3 interprets this verse as referring to Jesus, and it calls Jesus the sure mercies of David. Why are they sure? Because he tells David that my mercy shall never depart. They're sure, okay? Did God's mercy ever depart from the human kings that descended from David? Absolutely. Yes, it did. But Isaiah 55 says that God's sure mercies will never depart from the coming Messiah. Or those united to him. And he says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Okay, look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So it's these references to an enduring kingdom, never-ending throne, never-ending house, never-ending mercies, a never-ending son... That made interpreters even before the time of Jesus realize this has got to be talking about more than Solomon and these other kings. This has to be a reference to the coming uh, Messiah who's already come. Uh, Even verse 14, which speaks of chastening, even though it had partial fulfillment in Solomon, who did get chastened by God, you know, with the kingdoms around him, even that verse, according to commentators like. Bergen has a reference to Jesus who was a suffering king. Why? Because he took our sins upon him as if they were his own sins. And he took Solomon's sins, he identified with them, and he took the sins of other Christian kings. And Christian kings must rule as those united to Jesus or they destroy the purpose of the Davidic covenant. And we're going to scoop forward near the end of your outlines. uh, I have given six verses from the Gospels, I think it's six, Yep, that um, prove that Jesus was the temple. They all prophesied that when Jesus' body came out of the grave, his body replaces the physical temple as being the temple for his people. But there's a double entendre here because God's people are the temple because they are his body Acts chapter 15, which is the last verse that I put in there, uh, quotes Amos to prove that the building of the church is the building up of David's house or tabernacle. And then I give some scriptures that prove that Jesus will reign forever and ever. Let me just read one of them. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You could not get a clearer fulfillment of all of the details of Second Samuel chapter 7 than that uh, scripture there in, in, in Luke. And I'm not going to read the others because I think this one clearly shows. I mean, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the possessor of an imperishable kingdom, the inheritor of the promise of an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne. Now, if you skip all the way down to the bottom of your outline, I just want to show you one more hint that this passage points to Jesus. And this hint, it's just a hint, makes it exegetically, perfectly legitimate for the New Testament authors to point to this chapter to prove the virgin birth Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're not going to see it explicitly here, but you will, it's a perfectly logical deduction from the facts of of, of this passage. Though both David's throne and Solomon's throne are said to be forever, only David's seed and David's house are said to rule on that throne forever. There's a distinction between those two. There's nothing in the text that indicates that Solomon's seed would rule forever. And I'm going to have to pull three strands together for you to see the significance of this. Uh, First of all, turn to 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 3 where we see that the throne of David and the throne of Solomon symbolize something. Okay, 1 Chronicles 29 verse 3. Then Solomon sat... On the throne of the Lord, that's all capital letters, Lord, that's Yahweh. So this is very, very interesting. It says, then Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. So I want you to notice that the throne of David and the throne of Solomon are called the throne of Yahweh. They were reigning as representatives of God's eternal reign. Their throne is symbolic of God's eternal reign. So their throne is called Yahweh's throne. So there's absolutely no problem for 2 Samuel 7 to say that their throne is forever. Okay, In verse 13, 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, it calls Solomon's throne forever. Why could he call Solomon's throne forever? Because it's the throne of Yahweh. And then in verse 16, it calls David's throne eternal. Why? It's the same throne. It's the throne of Yahweh. But the same is not true of the seed or the dynasty of Solomon. If Jesus descended from Solomon, or if he was treated as being the seed of Solomon or the house of Solomon, we'd have a major, major problem. And that problem can be seen in Jeremiah chapter 22. In that chapter, Kaniah, the surviving son of Solomon, was cursed forever, and God swore that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne. None of his descendants would sit on the throne. And I'll just go ahead and read it for you. Jeremiah 22, beginning at verse 24 uh, through 30. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the land, into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return." Is this man, Keniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Oh earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah." Now let me pull some of the threads together so you can see the the significance of where we're going with this. Joseph, who was the adoptive legal father of Jesus, traces his lineage back to David through Caniah and Solomon, okay, through Caniah and Solomon. So if Joseph had been the biological father of Jesus, Jesus could not have inherited the throne. Can you see that? Because no descendant of Caniah can inherit the throne. So Matthew gives the genealogy of Joseph, while Luke gives the genealogy of Mary, who is the biological mother of Jesus. Her genealogy goes back to David through a different son, Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, but Nathan, uh, David's son. So Christ's legal right to the throne of David comes through his adoptive father, Joseph, but Christ's blood right to the throne comes through his earthly mother, Mary. One hundred percent of his blood comes through David, Nathan, down through Mary, okay? Uh, But since kings could adopt sons and give them a legal right to the throne, it was no problem for Jesus to be the adopted son of Joseph. And to me, this is just so cool, that God knits these things together like this. It would have been impossible for those two requirements for the Messiah to have been achieved apart from a virgin birth. It's just simple logic. Impossible apart from a virgin birth. If Jesus had been a biological son of Solomon and Keniah, He would have been excluded from the throne. And I believe that is why Luke 1 shows all of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Christ and connects that with the virgin birth. I think that's why he does it. Uh, So even the tiniest details of prophecy are sure and certain. We can trust the tiniest details of every portion of the word of God. And there are some people who just kind of, let's just get the general meaning of the passage and it's just not a right approach to scripture. Uh, I remember when I was in seminary Meredith Klein was giving his um, pessimistic all-millennial interpretation of a passage in in Daniel uh, where everything's coming to an end and the church is going to be exterminated and everything's hopeless and uh, all of that kind of stuff and I raised my hand and I said but The preposition that is used here is to. It says he came to the ancient of days. It doesn't say he came back from the ancient of days. So how could it be the second coming? That would be from, not to. And he said, oh, you should just take the general meaning of the passage. Don't focus on every little word. And I was thinking to myself, wasn't that what Christ commanded us to do? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. (coughs) Well, I want to conclude with two more applications, and actually some of these are reiterations, but I think they are so important. First, don't see the new covenant as abrogating the previous five covenants. Dispensationalists do that. The two-kingdom people do that. It's just rife today, and it's not reformed, it's not historical, and it's certainly not biblical. Galatians says that no covenant of God can be abrogated. The new covenant builds upon, fulfills, and expands upon them, but the core of all of the previous covenants continues on in the New Covenant. Let me give you some hints of that. The individual and family blessings that were lost in Adam's fall can be restored through Jesus. Covenant succession can be restored through Jesus. Spiritual warfare can be restored through Jesus. Romans 16 says it's not just Jesus... ...who crushes the Satan's head. It does say that, that Jesus is the one who crushes Satan's head. But it says that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. He was telling the Roman Christians that. And uh, the Gospels say, I give authority to who? It wasn't just to leaders, to the 70 disciples, to any disciple. He gives them the authority to tread upon serpents and lions and all the power of the wicked one, the spiritual warfare that the Gospels talks about is simply the extension of what God had started promising in Genesis 3. Do we still have a rainbow? Yes, we do, every time it rains. Then Genesis tells us that the covenant with Noah continues to be in effect and we need to value animals and stewardship of the earth. And this is what E. Calvin Beisner said should be the foundation of all Christian ecological Uh, endeavors not secular environmentalism not radical environmentalism but biblical stewardship of the earth and he set up a whole thing what's the name of it Joel Uh, in his his image in his image is a new stewardship program that they're advancing Now, of course the New Testament says over and over again we're in the Abrahamic covenant the church issues of Genesis 17 continue to bless and bind the church in the New Testament with only one change, and that is that circumcision replaces—I mean, it is replaced by baptism. The blood ceremonies are replaced by the water ceremony of uh, of baptism. But Galatians uh, 3 through 4 says there really isn't any other change. Galatians 4.1 says babies continue to be heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 4.1. They have to be because of the organic connection uh, of these covenants. What about the covenant under Moses? God's purposes for nations under Moses are being carried forward by the second Moses, Jesus, as he uses the church to disciple all nations and teach them to observe all things that he has commanded. Now listen to Matthew 5, 17-19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets? I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But then he warns us, Don't you dare approach the Mosaic Covenant like the Pharisees do, apart from grace. Uh, He says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's only through Jesus that the Mosaic Covenant can possibly be fulfilled, and we must look at the Mosaic Covenant through new covenant eyes. Okay? Okay. And uh, just see it as one phase among many, from paradise lost to paradise restored. Well, what about putting all enemies under David's feet? 1 Corinthians 15.25 says of Jesus, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And you read that whole chapter and you realize Paul is saying... That Jesus has to remain at the right hand of the Father till all enemies are under his feet. He cannot come back. And even the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death, happens just before his second coming. As he's coming... In the clouds of heaven, we're going to be, those of us who are still alive, will be caught up to meet him in the air. The dead will rise, and this triumphant army of the elect is going to accompany Christ in his second coming to judge the earth. That means every enemy put under the feet of Christ prior to the second coming. We've got glorious things ahead of us on planet earth. I think this is one of the reasons why the prophets in the Old Testament wished that they could be a part of our time. We live in glorious times. Do not be pessimistic. Put your faith in Christ and His promises and and, and seek to have the obedience of faith. It's an incredible privilege to be New Covenant Christians. Now, one more application, and this is perhaps the most important one. Our inheritance is not just earth, but heaven for all eternity. The forevers of this chapter are our forevers. And they should inspire us just as David praised and glorified God in Psalm 105 uh, after verse 17. We too should make the rest of our lives an exercise of praise and service to Jesus. And I think we need to recognize even our praise and service is not going to earn God's favor. It flows from God's favor just like it did with, with David. And so from eternity past, before there even was a world... To eternity future, after the second coming, when we're going to be enjoying all of the fruits of the covenant without any presence of sin, it's all of grace. And therefore, God gets all the glory. Uh, We should do just like David did and say, Sole Deo Gloria, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to see all glory going to your name. And however weak and feeble we sometimes feel, it is irrelevant. We know it's irrelevant uh, because uh, your strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, However tortured we may feel uh, by the attitudes of others, it is irrelevant. With David, may we cast that off and not to uh, take to ourselves the barbs that uh, the enemies throw against us, but may we look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and see even the barbs that men throw at us, the difficulties and trials we go through as being a part of your covenant of grace that is perfecting us, that you are working all things together for our good. Help us, Father, to have the attitudes of faith all the days of our lives. And, Father, I pray that this congregation would have an impact upon our society that is altogether out of proportion to our size because we are leveraged on the rock of Jesus Christ. Father, be glorified and cause this nation to bow its knees before you. May the Mosaic... Uh, The central core issues of gospel and law be lived out in this nation. May the core issues of gospel and law be lived out in all of the other nations of this world. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus, knowing that you will fulfill your glorious promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.